Would you uh, pray with me? Father, would you grant to us grace that we would understand your word and that your word would be uh, a comfort to the troubled and the disturbed and the those in uh, deep desperation. Father, would it uh, would it disturb those who are overly comforted and comfortable and not aware of the greatness of your glory and sit with a degree of presumption before you. Father, grant to us grace um, by the freely giving of your spirit that we might uh, both understand rightly and that you would place a guard over my lips that I may speak truthfully and encouragingly and prophetically. Um, And I would ask that you would do this uh, because of the merits of your son and the pleading of your people. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most uh, high school students come into contact with Henry David Thoreau, his writings. Um, He wrote a book called Walden, which is, as you know, a a book about his few years in the... uh, He wanted to live uh, deliberately and intentionally. And so he built a a shack uh, near a pond called Walden, of course. And uh, it's not where Golden Pond comes from. That's a totally different story. Um, but uh, Carol and I took the kids there once. It's a beautiful lake, really, that you can walk around. And he lived there because he wanted to live deliberately and intentionally, uh, finding that men are caught up in the affairs of the world too greatly, and they lose much of life. In fact, in his first essay after that, he had that famous quote uh, that is, the mass of men um, live in quiet desperation and then go to the grave with a song still in them. In other words, this desperation that men and women live with. Now, in the context when he wrote that essay, it was in regard to men and women, for our cases, uh, being enslaved to their work or enslaved to those for whom they work, to whom they work. But um, if we expand that out, we do live, I would agree, that we live in quiet desperation. I mean, there is issues and troubles that, that, are, that are walking with you through this life. It's a quiet desperation. It's not overt. It's not over the top. There's a desperation to life. There's a dissatisfaction. There is a, a disharmony, a dissonance with life that we live with. And, and, and the, the psalmist, whereas this poet, this author, this 19th century transcendentalist, where he would say it's related to the external affairs of life, I would say it's much deeper than that. And the psalmist would agree that our desperation comes from something beyond being enslaved to work or those to whom and for whom we work. And so if Psalm 130 specifically is speaking to this, it's like a testimony he's giving us of his life. He was in desperation. He was in despair and he found delight and joy in God. That's what the Psalms are for. The Psalms are helping give us words with which we can express to God those things that are most troubling and difficult. They're really instructive for us. This is a Psalm of Ascent. 
by title and by order. It's the Psalms from 120 to 134 are Psalms of Ascent. Those are Psalms that pilgrims would use on the way to Jerusalem to prepare for worship. But this Psalm has lament in it. It's a psalm of lament according to its content. And you remember from last week, a, a lament psalm is a psalm where the psalmist is crying out to God for deliverance from some great struggle that he is undergoing and is appealing to God. Now, these lament psalms are very instructive because they lead us. They recognize, yes, life is filled with despair and desperation, but in God there's hope, there's delight, there is a way out of despair. And so they're very instructive to us. And so if you turn with me to Psalm 130, I want to I look at this psalm with you, and I want you to see the tearing of his heart in the first few verses and why his heart is being torn asunder, leading him to this desperation. And then he leads us out. And you will even see at the end, He preaches to the congregation of the glory of God. So Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see the despair in, in the first two verses. Listen to his words. Out of the depths I cry to you. Hear my voice. Be attentive to the voice. I'm pleading for mercy. I mean, clearly this is not some minor disappointment or wrinkle in life. This is not some some slight bad turn of events that have gone awry for him. I mean, he is in the depth of despair. I mean, you can hear it in his words. This is more than just a compartmentalized struggle. This is affecting his body and his soul. He's in the depths of despair. The word for depths is deep waters. He's in massively deep waters. I mean, you can just imagine. It's chaotic. It's dark. The turbulent waters, they're kind of rising up to his neck. They're beginning to to crest where his chin is. And, and, And he knows that the end is in sight. He's bending towards death right now. You don't hear anything in him thinking that he has something in him that can deliver him from this. I mean, he's making no pretenses. I've got nothing in the bag. I've got nothing, Tom. I'm all alone right now. I'm in deep trouble. It's a deep, deep despair. Those of you who have been here, you know the feeling. It's massive. It's weighty. There is nothing left that I can turn to. There's no friend. There's no experience. There's no history. There's nothing. There's no poet there's no writer that i can turn to i'm out of options it's like david in psalm 69 he says save me O god for the waters have come up to my neck i sink in deep mire where there is no foothold i've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me i mean it's a profound picture of desperation that we 
the people of God will face. Of course, the question is, why is he so desperate? What is the trouble? If you remember last week, David was, of course, in Psalm 13, he was speaking more externally. These external factors, these enemies were coming into his life, as well as other factors and situations. But here we find it's internal, that the desperation is from within. And I would say to you that it's it's a personal anguish. It's a deep sorrow over his own sin before God. It's a rupturing of this relationship, this this man, this godly man has come to terms with his sin before God, and he is absolutely desperate. He is displaced from God. There's a rupture in the relationship. And I say that because if you look at verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Twice in the same verse, he's speaking to God, using a personal name, using the, the name Adonai, Lord. He knows. He's indicating. He's fully aware that he stands in judgment before God unprofitable servant, has no claim upon God. He's absolutely in sin, and he's appealing to God. He, he, he's not making any excuses. He knows he's responsible. He knows he's culpable. Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities. I don't want you thinking for a minute that, that he just understands himself to not be perfect. I don't want you thinking the desperation has come from from a situation that, you know, he has unmet desires. His life hasn't turned out the way it's supposed to be. Unfulfilled wishes. It's nothing to do with that. There There is an intimacy of knowledge that he has sinned against a holy and righteous God, and judgment is his lot. Should be his lot. That he is before God, the God of the universe, and it's him. Eight times in eight verses, he speaks to God using his name. He's appealing directly to Yahweh because that is the one with whom he has a problem. So this desperation, this this first two verses, the psalmist clearly has his heart, his soul on the table. He sees it for what it's worth, and he says, I'm pleading for mercy. Now, this is, I know to you, as I say this, very few of you could say, yeah, I remember I had that experience. We don't think this way. I mean, in our culture now, sin is a category that is off to the side. I mean, the despair that we have is related to things not going right. Or the job, I didn't get the job, I didn't get the promotion. My marriage isn't working out as well as I wanted to. It's all these external factors that aren't working. It's like, it's like Thoreau just saying, well, you know, if we could somehow, if we could live more intentionally, then the desperation will leave. Not so. You could get everything you want right now. You could give me a list of a thousand things you want to remove the pain and the distress and, and the trouble in your life, and we could give them to you, wave a wand. There would ultimately still be a deep desperation when you, when you come to terms with who you are. We don't think this way. We have a culture, remember. We don't have shame in this culture. Do you know what that means when you don't have shame? You don't know sin. Sin causes shame. Sin is a, is a mark. It's a standard. And when you don't live into it, there's a degree of shame. Shame is not necessarily a bad thing. Shame is that sense of I'm out of conformity with the standard. And when you remove shame, you evidence that there is no sin. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, you have actions of politicians, of sports figures, of, of yeah, just across the board, th- this whole situation, even in our own state, 
you know, Ralph Hunter, this woman that uh, had the child with Jonathan Edwards, is going to come out with a tell-all book. That would never be. Even 75 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. The the shame of some of the scandals, it doesn't move people like a great scale. It doesn't move them out of the country. They just write a book about it. There's no shame left. And there's no sin. There's no shame. And so to speak about this is I'm climbing up a hill. What we do is we justify. We we rationalize. We excuse. We don't come to terms with who we are. Uh, our, Our capacity, particularly in this country, Western culture I would say, but particularly in America, our capacity to rationalize and even move ourselves into status of victimization is profound. You know, the the true story, uh, Charles Sykes wrote a book called We're a a Nation of Victims. And uh, in this, he references a case, a court case in Chicago, a man who was a member of the National Advancement of Acceptance for Fat People. It's an organization, and he's a member of it. And he brought a suit against McDonald's because he could not fit in their chairs. And so his case was that since 20% of Americans are obese, that 20% of the chairs should be of larger girth, for those of larger girth. Now, when I read it, I I chuckled in tears, if you will. I mean, I thought, wow, is this what it's coming to? When you remove a category of sin, then there's no culpability, there's no shame, there's little guilt. There is offense, there's the need for tolerance, there's rights. <clears throat> I want to encourage you to something. The, re- the rediscovering of sin is good. It's healthy. The, the rediscovering of, a, of an awareness of sin, it, <clears throat> it, it will ultimately be freeing. It reminds us of the holiness of God. It brings culpability back into our lives, responsibility. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. He's saying, happy are those who are mourning over their sin. He says, for they shall be comforted. In other words, you cannot understand the nature of forgiveness and freedom apart from your understanding of sin. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher in the 19th century, he says, he that hath, he that think lightly of sin, think lightly of the Savior. John Owen, of course, the great Puritan in the in the 17th century, wrote this. He said, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. C.S. Lewis wrote this. This is incredibly insightful. He says, When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. In other words, the more we grow in an awareness of our brokenness and sin before God, the greater freedom we have, the greater enjoyment we have of forgiveness. There is a deep healing of that inner desperation, that quiet desperation that is within us. So when when you look at your own souls for a minute now and and just think for when have you despaired over sin? When have you considered the nature of sin? Now, I I realize preaching a sermon like this. Here's the problem with preaching a sermon. 
on a topic like this. I can lead you into greater depression. I'm not looking to do that. I'm not looking to make you feel worse. I'm trying to give us a proper assessment of the landscape of our souls so that we can actually be moved forward, so we can get to the delight, the satisfaction, and the joy that is promised us in the back half of this, of this psalm. So I don't, I'm not looking to create greater oppression for you. That's why I prayed at the beginning, God, don't let me disturb the disturbed. Let me disturb the comforted, the overly comforted. When you look at your own soul, if you took verse 3 and you asked yourself a question and you said, if you, so put yourself in verse 3. or ask, You can be the one asking the question of God. If you, O oh Lord, should mark my iniquities, could I stand? I mean, answer that question. I mean, if he knew every thought, every word, every deed, every intention of your heart, and if he kept a log of that, would you feel comfortable to stand before God as vindicated? Do you think you'd hear, not guilty? Do you, you think you would hear, hey, you know, you're really a good person inside. I mean, I mean w- w- would you stand comfortable before that? I mean, as I think about this, I don't remember half my sins. I mean, I don't even remember them. And it's not that they were small. It's not that they were menial. I mean, they were significant. I just don't remember and if he kept a record of those, who could stand? So, so the psalmist is trying to help us to identify with God rightly over the nature of our souls. And, and people of God, I, I encourage you. To, to the non-Christian here, you've got to deal with the guilt. There is a standard. Uh, you will live a life of quiet and perhaps even deafeningly as life goes on, desperation over these issues. But for the people of God, do you consider these things? We have hope. Look with me in verse 4. Uh, the psalmist appeals to Yahweh, and, and he looks outside of himself for deliverance. That's very important. He looks outside of, of himself for deliverance, and he turns to God. Now, I want you to know that this psalmist here, he's not casually looking to God demanding anything. He knows that while he's in covenant, he has been an unprofitable servant. He has sinned. He has broken covenant with God, and so the curses of of Deuteronomy, are his. So he knows that. He knows that. And and so he he doesn't come with any sort of boldness or or presumption before God. He is just looking at God now based upon the character that God has revealed. Let us thank God for the scriptures. We would not know about the glorious character of God apart from these scriptures. Unless God had brought to us a revelation of his kindness and his mercy, we would not necessarily know it to the degree that we do. And so the psalmist looks at God and he says, but with you there is forgiveness. God is right to bring judgment into our lives, but there's pardon. God is right to punish, but there's forgiveness. There will be many other people in this life that you live that you will not be forgiven of, but with God there is forgiveness. Does this surprise you to find it in the Old Testament? I mean, are you surprised? Don't you tend to think, or at least the word on the street, is God's vengeful, he's wrathful, he's cold, he's very judgmental. And the forgiveness and the mercy, that's for the New Testament. You've got to get to the New Testament. We tell people, don't read in the Old Testament because God's really an ogre back there. Let's go in the New Testament where God's really soft and pliable and, and, and we can work with them a lot more. And, and do you, are you surprised to see such lovely language of God? It, it's not unique to this. I mean, I could read, I could read to you from Exodus. The, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God declaring himself. 
Now to Moses, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a good, sorry, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Or Psalm 103, bless the Lord, forget not his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the nature of God. God is graciously forgiving to us. And so the psalmist, understanding he has no right, he has no claim upon God, turns to God because of the revealed character, and he pleads for mercy. He says, but with you there's forgiveness. And notice what happens when he turns. It says that you might be feared. God granting forgiveness is to cause a fear in the people of God. Now, I know this doesn't make sense to you. I I mean, you're thinking, why fear? I mean, I can see with you there's forgiveness that you may be happy. I can see that. Or if we change everything around and said, well, with you there's judgment that you're feared. I get that. But, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. What's that mean? Well, remember, the fear of God in Scripture is not this fear that God's going to all of a sudden go gray on us or he's going to bring up the old sins that he's forgiven previously or, or he's going to turn on us in some measure. That's not the fear of God in Scripture. The fear of God in Scripture is a reverence, is a respect, is an awe of the character of God once you know him. So once you grow to understand his transcendent holiness and glory and goodness, you just stand in fear. And then, okay, so get that picture of God. Transcendent holiness, absolute perfection, sheer power, nothing can he not do. He is without error, without sin, gracious, lovely, beautiful, He is heavy laden with perfections. And then he comes to you with forgiveness. Based not upon your lineage, not upon your family, not upon your works, not upon your potential. He just graciously forgives you. That causes fear. Why? Well, because all of a sudden when we come to understand him and he graces us with forgiveness, it is to move in us a love for him that we fear offending him. We don't fear his reaction to us, but we fear offending one with whom we think so highly. I mean, it's somewhat analogous to a father. If you had a father, and, um, and he was just a perfect daddy, he, uh, he was godly, he was moral, he was sacrificial, he walked with deep integrity, uh, he, he, he just had your deep reverence and respect, and, and you just looked up to him. And, and you would fear disappointing him. And not because he would come against you or not because he would turn on you, not because he would stop loving you, but you just love him so much. And that's what the fear is, that with him there is forgiveness that you might be feared. In other words, if you understand that forgiveness of God and from where it comes, you're like, I don't want to sin. I, I don't want to go back there. It's not to, we don't have to tell people what they shouldn't do. We should be telling people how great God is. And as their love for God grows, then they won't want to go there. It's natural, right? If if you love God, do whatever you please, Augustine says. Love God, do whatever you want. Because if you love him, you're not going to do that which is contrary to what he wants. And because you know what he wants is what's best for you anyways. 
And, and, and then the psalmist it caught up in this forgiveness and, and now fearing God now moves into this, what do I do? This, this isn't a passive thing. When God grants forgiveness, it doesn't generate a casualness with sin. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, I'm going to wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning. Well, what's he waiting for? Well, he's not waiting for forgiveness. He's just received that. With you, there is forgiveness, present tense. But, but, but there is forgiveness. What's he waiting for? What's he striving for? You know, you think about a watchman. You know, watchman, so you're at the city wall, and you're, it's dark, right? And so you're really straining your eyes because the safety of the city is kind of resting on you doing your job, right? So you're, you're yearning, you're striving, you're pursuing your job well, your family's in the city, and, and you're waiting for the morning. There's nothing better than a watchman at night than the morning. Why? Because you can see everything. It's safety. You step down. You get to walk in safety again. And, and, and the good thing is they're expecting for morning to come. Morning always comes, right? Morning's there. Every morning, it's always there. So it's not like, is morning coming? It's, when is morning coming? So this hope in the watchman is not an uncertainty. It's an expectancy. And, and so we are to be waiting. What are we waiting for? We are to be waiting for the freshness of God's forgiveness. We have received it, but the experience of a restored fellowship with God that joy, that satisfaction, that cleansing. So many of you are bearing guilt still of past sins, and, and we're to be waiting for the refreshing spirit from God to cleanse us, to give us that sense of restored fellowship, that he's my father, I'm his son, I'm his daughter, that he loves me, that I love him, that, that restored fellowship and intimacy with God that is the privilege of every believer. And it doesn't just come like a truckload. But we wait for it, we strive for it, we want it, we pursue it. This is what Matthew Henry, a great pastor, theologian, writes. He says, from him I expect relief and comfort, believing it will come, longing till it does come, patiently bearing the delay of it, resolving to look for it from no other hand. Boy, isn't that, wouldn't it be lovely? For us to pursue it only from God, we don't turn to all the little crutches that we have, whether it might be alcohol or friends or experiences or something. We just turn. We wait only for God to bring it. He says, I, am ex- he says, um, I wait for him in sincerity and not in profession only. I am expectant, and it is for the Lord that my soul waits and for the gifts of his grace and the operations of his power. So the psalmist here is showing us in the first two verses this cry of despair, the cry of the guilty. Yes, this is who I am. I'm absolutely accountable, responsible for my sins. I deserve nothing but your just punishment, and you would be glorified to give it to me, but I appeal to you, because with you there's forgiveness. With you there's forgiveness, and I'm going to wait for the full taste, and I'm going to wait for the full enjoyment. He's going to give it to you incrementally, leading you to greater and greater joy in him, greater and greater intimacy. That's what the psalmist is calling for. So people of God, do you see God is forgiving? Do you see him this way? Is this new speech for you? See, I think we go off on two tracks oftentimes. One, we think about the nature of God as wrathful and vengeful. We just boil down and look at the wrath of God, and we're distant from God. We're scared of him. We don't want to go, and we justify it because we don't know what it'll do if we do go to him. And some people just shy away from God over this caricature of his vengefulness. 
Okay, the other track that we go off is this idea that he has to forgive me. You know, people have told me, I can't believe in a God that would judge. I, I don't believe in it. He's required. If I ask him, he has to give me. And, and we almost stand above God in that situation. And both are wrong because they're taking a truth, emphasizing it, neglecting another. What the psalmist is calling for, you and me, that once we understand our guilt, our shame, our sin, we can cry to God. We can appeal to God for forgiveness. You can ask. You may be in the depths of the deepest waters, and you can ask. Forgiveness is now. It is open to those who call upon the Lord. And and, and particularly for this psalm, you can call upon God in the midst of your sin. Now, I know that is contrary to the way we behave. I mean, here's, so, snapshot in the life of Tom Mercer. Uh, I sin in some measure, maybe harboring anger or bitterness or lust. You can pick any of them. They occur in my life on some degree of regular basis. And and you feel dirty. And so, you don't want to go to God. You want to wait. I want to read the Bible for a couple of days. I want to do a little bit of devotion. Maybe I'll get into some ministry. And I'll do an act or two that would give me some degree of personal well-being that now I can appeal to God. And, and the psalmist is not saying that. The psalmist is saying, at the very bottom, your prayers will reach the very heights of heaven. That God has an ear bent towards those who are crying out in despair in the midst of their sin. This prayer is not for the good people. This prayer is for those of us who are knee-deep in sin and we cannot seem to extricate ourselves from it. And we have sinned it over and over and over again. Uh, Archibald Simpson was a, uh, a theologian that Charles Spurgeon quotes in his preaching on this passage. And here's what he says. He says, The throne of God is most high. Yet he delights to hear the petition of hearts that are most low, that are most cast down by the sight of sin. Spurgeon comments on this. He says, It matters little where we are if it matters little where we are if we can pray. But prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. I want to encourage us, turn to God. I don't know where you are. I don't know the sins you're struggling with. It may be a lack of desire. You may not give a rip about God. You may be knee-deep in pornography and masturbation. You may be in financial. I don't know where you are. But, but the psalmist is clearly saying, the prayers from the pit can rise to the top of heaven. And, and, and do not listen to the voice of darkness that says, you've repented of that before. Don't ask God again. You've repented a hundred times of that. God's not going to, you're not sincere. He's not going to listen to you. You can't be saved. This thing has got you so tied around your neck, it's going to be forever a companion. Don't listen to those voices. You know, Martin Luther used to struggle, the German reformer, used to struggle a lot with temptation to disbelief. And he would have, at least in his life of prayer and in his mind, he would have these battles with Satan over darkness, confronting him with his sin. And one time in particular, he was confronted by Satan. and I think he was at Coburg, a, a castle that he spent time at. And, and he's confronted with Satan, and Satan is bringing up his sins. And you know what he did? He got up and he quoted Psalm 130 to him in Latin. With you there's forgiveness. With you there's steadfast love. With you there is plentiful redemption. 
to confront those. Do not give in to those dark voices that you cannot be forgiven. God's forgiveness far exceeds your capacity to sin. Please don't fall in some form of reverse pride of thinking we can somehow out-sin his ability to bring reconciliation to a people that he wants to save. It's profound hope for us here. But notice, look what he does in in verses 7 and 8. He he shifts gears. He says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Now the psalmist now is preaching to the congregation. He's saying, listen, I was in a pit of deep despair over my sin. I appealed to God, for with him there is deep forgiveness, and I waited, and I waited, and I'm receiving the refreshment, and now I'm telling you, people, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Trust in him. He's speaking to those who are are inundated with sin. You don't think you're forgivable. You don't think God listens to you. You've sinned too much. And so you just go quiet with God. And he's saying, no, 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 put your hope in God. He's not giving us some offer. Like, here's a new formula I have for you. He's not offering some form of cheap grace. Look at what he does. He roots the offer again. What? In you? No. In the character of God, he says, for with the Lord there's steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. Listen, that steadfast love, that, remember the Hebrew word I explained last week, the hesed, it's the, it, it's the loving, kind mercy of God. I don't know that there's an English word that you can really translate it with. It's a loyal love. It's a covenant love. It's a love that God has established with us that cannot be broken. He's saying because he's that way, there's hope for you. There's hope for every one of you. It's, you know, Matthew Henry calls this his most darling attribute. Isn't it darling that he would be so filled with mercy? But not just that, he is, with him there's redemption, plentiful redemption. That word redemption, of course, is often used in the market of slaves. When you're buying back a slave, the man is enslaved to, a, to an owner. He can do nothing except for what the owner demands. And God purchased us out of slavery, now us, to guilt and to shame and to sin. He purchased us out of that and brings us to himself. There is plentiful redemption. The word plentiful means complete. It means total. This offer of forgiveness isn't partial. It's not, I'm going to save you part way. It is a full and complete redemption. It's not, I'm just going to offer it and hopefully hopefully someone's going to take the Take up the offer. No, there is assurance, actual salvation. All the sins will be forgiven. Now, this psalmist here is calling you to do that. Now, this psalmist didn't understand what you have heard here in this church. The psalmist didn't understand about the nature of the cross, per se. The the psalmist had faith in Yahweh, and he had faith in Yahweh to provide a means through which forgiveness would come and, and reconciliation, restoration would happen, that they would walk as the people of God. Um, I imagine that there may have been some understanding of it having to be some sacrifice. You have the situation with Abraham and Isaac, and you have the ram being offered, provided by God. You have the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointing to something, and that's what John the Baptist obviously said, behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God. So so, but he didn't have all that we have. We say that the Old Testament saints, it, they had more of a proleptic faith. It was looking forward to that which Yahweh would provide. But we, on this side of the cross, now look back and we see what Yahweh has provided. And that is Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one to bear the sins. This wasn't lost on um, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. If you remember him, um, when he gave this great 
prayer under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, Blessed be the God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, the redemption of which I'm speaking about in Psalm 130. And he saw that John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He knew that John was going to be forerunning for the Messiah, that the Messiah would be accomplishing redemption. So we now, on this side of the cross, see that Jesus is what? The psalmist was ultimately looking for, though he didn't know it. What I mean by that is that Jesus is now the new Israel, that upon Jesus was laid our sins. This is the gospel, that upon Jesus the wrath of God was born, that he bore the curse that had separated us from God. And him bearing the curse now brings us through adoption back into the family of God by faith in Christ. That's what Romans 3 is speaking about when he says, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So, so, so for us now, listening to this psalm, the psalmist was preaching and saying, put your hope in God. And I now am preaching to the congregation saying, put your hope in God through faith in Christ for this forgiveness. I mean, that, that's the call. That, that the hope is not just offered to you, but it is gathered by faith in Christ, who now has borne this. This is why I can say to you, with him there's forgiveness. With him there's steadfast love. All these things are with us and for us in Christ. That's why the scriptures speak just a, so much more to the fact that we are in Christ rather than Christ is in us. The scriptures want us to see ourselves in Christ as he is the head, we are the body, together. This is a corporate psalm here in this respect. So what do you do with this? People of God, you've heard me speak about the cry of desperation from the guilt of sin. We've seen the psalmist rise to delight the heights of forgiveness. And now he's inviting you to participate in this. So you can do one of two things with this word. You can stand back in a degree of presumption. In other words, you can. This is a warning for some of us here uh, to not be presumptuous. To be presumptuous. To be presumptuous, what I mean by that is, is that um, you, know, you kind of look at your life and when you begin to analyze your soul as I've asked you to, you look at your life and you can justify and you can explain and you can rationalize all the things that you've done that you probably shouldn't have done. You know, if she was kinder to me or you know, if I had had that break at the office and you know what, I just had parents that really didn't raise me the way they should have and you can bring a slew of excuses that's a degree of presumption, as if you have no culpability. By presumption, what I mean by that is that oftentimes you'll look at your life and you'll analyze it. You'll say, I've been pretty good. You'll look at the sacrificial and devotional acts you've performed and, and you, you become the judge and the jury. You say, you know what, I give you a verdict of not guilty. We do that. We do do that. I mean, we do render verdicts of not guilty for ourselves. By presumption, I mean that you don't look at your sin as what it is in respect to the holiness of God. You look more at the things that you've done for God as giving you a place before God, not even recognizing the grace that you needed to do those things. By presumption, I mean that that oftentimes you will justify your actions based upon things like, well, God doesn't expect me to have to do that. You you know, so the person person seeking uh, breaking up of a relationship. God doesn't want me to be unhappy. I've heard that so many times. I'm like, why? Who said that? Where does he say that? 
God just wants you to be happy all the time? This isn't Barney, it's God. You know, God, there is unhappiness in this life. And, and so there's a presumption when we begin to import our desires as if they were God's words. I, I would just encourage you, if you are, if you sense a degree of presumption, not even, a presumption could be as simple as you don't have the time or make the time to do some hard inspection over the nature of your soul before God. What would that be presuming? In my mind, it would be presuming that we're okay. We got it straight. It's like, uh, Carol and I read this last night, the last words of Henry David Thoreau when his aunt came up to him and said, have you made peace with God? And he said, I didn't know we ever had a quarrel. Well, you should have thought a little more. So, so that's a presumption there. Now, so that's a warning. And, and folks, I, I would encourage you, if, if that is landed somewhere in your, in your neighborhood, th- then I would encourage you to think through these things. Th- th- pull this psalm out, think it through. Ask God to give you wisdom. Psalm 139 says, test me and try me. See if there is any wicked way in me. You know, ask God for wisdom. I've done that before. And, and he showed me. I mean, I remember the night that he woke me up at four in the morning with a glaring picture of what I had done years prior that was really, really just ugly. And uh, I remember getting out of bed and just just confessing. I asked him to show me, and he showed me. And I'm thankful for that. So people of God, ask him. And for those of you non-Christian, if this is burdening you, then please... Come forward after the service. We'd love to speak with you. But for those who are burdened, for those of you who are carrying around guilt, you are dragging corpses behind you, and, and you have trouble letting go. You, you, you walk in self-condemnation, and, and you're constantly struggling over what you're doing wrong. Folks, be encouraged by this word. I mean, think on the character of God, that with him there is forgiveness, there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption for you. There are many of you that are dragging behind you just a a host of corpses that are not yours to carry anymore. I mean, I, I think about the nature of Jesus saying, I've come for the sick, not for the healthy. I've not come for the righteous. You just sang it. That's why I love that song, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched. Come, ye sinners. I think about Isaiah when he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. He says, Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. You can't buy what he has for you, but he's going to give it to you. And and take that rest. Enjoy. Focus on what Jesus Christ has done for you. I mean, today, make the decision. Determine in your mind you're going to wait for the Lord and pursue him until he brings those waters of refreshment over your soul that that takes away all the sins, that you would be restored to joy and satisfaction and happiness in him. You're waiting for the Lord, that intimacy with him. Let me just close with what... um, Uh, J.C. Ryle had to write about the nature of the cross. He said, I find no balm for a sore conscience and a troubled heart like the sight of Jesus dying for me on the accursed tree. There I see that full payment has been made for all my enormous debts. 
The curse of that law which I have broken has come down on one who there suffered in my stead. The demands of that law are satisfied. Payment has been made for me even to the uttermost farthing. It will not be required twice over. I might sometimes imagine I was too bad to be forgiven. My own heart sometimes whispers that I'm too wicked to be saved. But I know in my better moments, this is all my foolish unbelief. I read an answer to my doubts in the blood shed on Calvary. I feel sure that there is a way to heaven for the very vilest of men when I look at the cross. So let's take a minute now and just um, respond to God in his word. Respond to the character of God as he expressed himself in the scripture and particularly through Christ. And and, um, I would ask you just to pray briefly so that others can pray with you and pray loudly that we can hear you and and affirm you. You know, when we were singing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, I I didn't sing. Uh, The song tears me to pieces, frankly. Um, Absolutely love that song. You all sung it beautifully. But I wanted to hear you sing it to me. I wanted to hear you preach to me before I preached to you. And you preached beautifully to me. I was reminded. I just sat and thought as you sang over and over. I thought, oh, what deep love. And so when we pray, you're praying. We want to join with you in that prayer. We want those words to be our words. So let me begin for us. And then... um, David's going to close for us in, in a few moments. Father, thank you for your word that we have, in which we have put our hope. That word of promise that you will forgive us, that you will adopt us, that you will reconcile, restore us, that we can wait for the time of refreshment to come as a watchman waits. Father, begin even now the dawn to break in our lives, that we might begin to enjoy in greater measure today the intimacy that is ours in Christ.